0: Hello, this is just a quick heads up at the start of this episode. So you may have noticed that this is an unlocked show. I believe this was the second ever world one that we did. The reason why I've unlocked it for this week is basically because um, we were supposed to be beginning the end of our time in America uh, on the show for the foreseeable future with the final American mini series. However, me and my um, partner Uh, my bud, who is doing the series with me. We took a first pass at this first episode and neither one of us was really happy with it. So we tried another pass and another. And at the moment, we are currently um, secluded in the bunker, sequestered even, shirt sleeves rolled up, thick cloud of cigarette smoke in the air, into the wee hours of the morning, staring intently at this drawing board and trying to figure out um, how to kind of restructure it so that it's more narratively compelling, more interesting as a listen. So that means that there was a hole in this week's schedule, the episode that was supposed to go out, we couldn't release. So basically, that's why I decided to unlock this one. However, the upshot of that is that next week, whether or not we figured out the, the first episode of the new mini-series. Next week, there will be um, two episodes. One will be a Ghost Stories um, standard self-contained sort of hour or so, and the other will be the next installment of the Books of War show, the History of the Sicilian Mafia. The Ghost Stories episode will be available for free on the public feed, the Books of War show, of course, that will be over on Patreon, behind the paywall. I'm trying to think, anything else I need to add before I begin? Um, oh, yeah, I mean, also, don't get the impression that I'm just giving away something for free that, you know, I don't really rate that highly anyway. I actually think that this show is one of the best that we've done. Um, it's really long. It's really sprawling. It goes all over the place, and it was a lot of fun putting it together, and making myself incredibly paranoid while I did it. So, with all of that out of the way, I would like to introduce Cartel World, Drugs, Banking, Empire, and Terrorism in the Last Days. Thanks for hearing me out here. Don't get captured. Godspeed, and we will rendezvous next week. Cheers. I had a dream about this place. and welcome to episode 23 of ghost stories for the end of the world hope you're good Um, apologies for the delay this is a subject that i have a tendency to get a a little expansive on Um, as you might remember from the shows about the matanza that we did a while back Um, this is another patreon exclusive episode so thanks for subbing and if you're ready Let's rock and roll. Uh, music this episode is courtesy of Auto Flag. A great bit of skittery beat work and exquisite synth programming called Francis's Mother Who Has No Taste buds, which is possibly the best title to a tune that I've seen this year. Uh, I will include the band camp in the, the show notes for this. So let's do it. The drug trade is haunted this entire show from the very first episode. And I doubt, in fact, that there's a single topic we've discussed where drug trafficking isn't at least two steps removed from whatever we've been talking about. Uh, We've previously discussed the CIA's involvement in opium smuggling out of the Golden Triangle, um, the Sicilian Mafia and the French Connection and the utility of off-the-books drug money to NATO's Gladio armies because we're still in the haunted America phase of this show we can't go fully global and look at all aspects of the drug trade the way that I would ideally like to Uh, so that'll have to wait for a, a later date but what we'll discover I think is that because drugs are such a globalized business even in an episode that strictly covers the U.S. state and private capital involvement in trafficking and money laundering well, that will still lead us all over the world. What I'm going to do tonight is take a look at a few stories of the way that state and non-state actors have involved themselves in drug trafficking, either directly or indirectly. And we're hopefully going to get a feel for how this stuff works and who benefits, where the money goes, and what it buys. And the best place to start would be at the top in my view, in the supposedly legitimate world of banking and finance. Um, um, this is one of the more famous cases of recent years, which is the HSBC money laundering scandal. HSBC had been warned repeatedly by US officials and regulators to clean up its businesses throughout the 2000s. Uh, In 2003, the Federal Reserve issued a number of cease and desist letters to HSBC because of its close relationship with Saudi Arabia's Al-Raji Bank. Remember, this is in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and Al-Raji Bank was considered one of the primary finances of Al-Qaeda. The bank used a network of shady Islamic charities to move money that financed various Al-Qaeda ops. Uh, Osama Bin Laden called this the golden chain. HSBC executives were fully aware of what Al-Raji was involved in and in a typically sleazy move, they officially distanced themselves from the bank while continuing to do business on the side with its subsidiaries. Now leaked emails show Leaked emails show that HSBA executives knew exactly what they were doing. Christopher Locke, who was the HSBC head of Global banknotes at the time, he sent multiple emails to his staff jerking about the method that they'd found to circumvent the cease and desist notice. And he insisted that a formal business relationship had to be reestablished as a a point of priority with Al-Raji as soon as the order was lifted. Now, HSBC are by no means the only financial power involved in this kind of stuff. Um, to a greater and to a greater or lesser extent, almost all the big banks have some interest in the dark economy. But HSBC got too greedy and too sloppy. And in 2009, U.S. federal regulators expanded their investigation into the bank and started going through its books. And they discovered that almost 18,000 alerts of suspicious activity had been willfully ignored and dismissed by the bosses. So they issued yet another toothless cease and desist notice to the bank. And in response, HSBC set up a fake anti-money laundering unit in a Delaware office, and they filled it with staff who'd previously only worked in the bank's credit card Call center, you know, just dealing with things like stolen cards or changes of address, that kind of thing. And remember, as HSBC executives later pointed out in court appearances, all they'd been told to do by the US government was clear the alerts, not to actually investigate them. So that's exactly what they set to work doing. Most of the staff they hired in Delaware were in their early 20s. None of them were taught how to investigate fraud or money laundering. Um, The vast majority of them seemed to be aware that the entire Delaware operation was a smoke show, which was designed to create the illusion of something being done. And when staff members did actually try to do their jobs, you know, by investigating one of the 18,000 shady transactions as fully as they could, well, the HSBC bosses will become extremely irritated and order them to stop wasting time. A typical working day entailed arriving at 8 a.m. and being issued a team target for the day. And usually, the team leader would say they wanted two or three alerts cleared per hour. And considering how long actual money laundering investigations can take, you know, we're talking anywhere from a few weeks to a few years in some cases, the BCCI the BCCI fallout, excuse me, Uh, the fallout from the collapse of Bank of Commerce and Credit International. I should have just said that. That's been going on for the better part of 30 years now. Um, The the courts are still tied up in litigation surrounding that. So yeah, um, in that context, expecting these kids to clear two or three um, alerts per day is obviously insane. Uh, The staff were then expected to verify the legitimacy of each transaction just by Googling the companies or customers involved. And if they had some kind of presence on the Internet and a company website was usually good enough, the bosses considered this a cleared alert and a safe transaction and wiped it off the list. Now the starting salary for this job was $55,000 a year. And I, I had to do a double take when I saw that because that converts to a little less than uh, 40,000 pounds a year in you know British currency, which is about 16,000 pounds more than a British nurse makes when they finish training. And in a lot of articles I've read about this, the $55,000 figure is used as a kind of cudgel to attack the Delaware call center stuff. But here's where I honestly land on it. I would 100% do that job um, or not do it as that seems to have been what HSBC actually wanted. Um, Staff were expected to clear about 70 alerts a week and apparently you could clear all 70 of them before lunchtime on a Monday because all you really had to do was verify that legitimate Cayman Business Incorporated had a website and that was enough as we've said. The rest of the time was yours. Uh, Everett Stern who was a whistleblower at the Delaware office he said that the bosses would even get angry if you asked for more work to do and it was a standard part of the working day to spend a few hours skipping stones in the water-filled quarry behind the office and kill off the last few hours of the shift getting stunned in the car park and watching YouTube and TV shows so if I was just some kid out of college or high school and I had a choice between doing that or working for less than minimum wage and no health insurance in some fast food place where I'd get screamed out all day by awful customers, it's a decision that makes itself, isn't it? And what we'll find as we continue through this episode is that drug trafficking and money laundering, um, there's some of the few areas where trickle-down economics actually kind of work, occasionally at least. So I know what you're waiting for, and that's El Chapo. Uh, HSBC laundered hundreds of millions for Joaquin Guzman and his Sinaloa cartel, as well as plenty of other drug syndicates operating out of Mexico and Colombia and elsewhere around the world. The figures here are staggering. Um, According to the Department for Homeland Security, between 2006 and 2009, HSBC allowed an estimated $200 trillion in wire transfers to pass without applying any scrutiny to them at all and it's simply it's not possible that all of them were clean transfers it also took the lead in the black market peso exchange where mexican cartels could convert money from drug sales in america to mexican currency and every drug sale and kidnapping and enslavement and murder and transaction the cartels conducted hsbc made a profit from it and here's where we we start to see the kind of Lovecraftian horror of the global financial system loom up as out of the murk because for all that the Senate Committee on Investigations and the federal prosecutors and the whistleblowers exposed about HSBC's activities, there is always a delicate parapolitical game being played behind the scenes that effectively means that nobody at the executive levels of any of these banks can ever see the inside of a jail cell no matter how many bodies pile up because of the business that they are facilitating. The Justice Department itself admitted why the US government had no intention of prosecuting any HSBC executives. Um, Assistant Attorney General Lanny Brewer gave a press conference where he stated unequivocally, quote, quote, Had the US authorities decided to press criminal charges, HSBC would have almost certainly lost its banking license in the US, the institution would have been under threat, and the entire global banking system would have been destabilized. So effectively, any moves to upset the existing order of things would destroy the world economy, according to the US Justice Department. And We've spoken before about the role the City of London plays as a, a crucial hub for money laundering activity around the world. and It's possibly the most covered-up square mile that has ever existed anywhere. The US had additional political reasons for not pursuing HSBC too much. HSBC also plays an important role in cleaning all the blood money that flows through the city, and much of it comes from other dirty banks in Britain and Europe and the middle and far east so weakening hsbc as an institution would create or could create a knock-on effect that could potentially trigger a gigantic diplomatic crisis with some of the us's closest allies and in the end the us elected to issue a strongly worded warning to hsbc and fine it 1.9 billion dollars which as pocket change for an institution with assets totaling just shy of three trillion. Now for a sense of the importance of drug money to the economy, we need to refer to the investigation undertaken by Antonio Maria Costa, who was the former head of the UN office on drugs and crime. So, you know, it's not some wild conspiracy theorist, this guy. Not particularly radical. Um, A year on from the 2008 recession, Costa described how as banks began to teeter on the verge of collapse and some of them went under, the system was paralyzed and different financial institutions stopped lending money and the only liquid capital available to them was drug money. It isn't subject to the the regulations and taxes that legitimate capital is. And if you disguise it right, it's relatively simple to funnel into the system. You know, all you need to do is, if you're a drug dealer and you've got a mattress full of dirty money, well, all you need to do is buy a coffee shop cheap somewhere and then just fill the till with the money and (laughs) just write it all off as transactions. You know, Uh, we had a sudden run on blueberry muffins. We sold (laughs) hundreds of pounds worth of blueberry muffins on Friday. So... Yeah, Costa never identified which banks turned to drug syndicates. Uh, He he cited the limits of his office's powers to disclose this kind of information, which is also a a recurring theme that you'll find from official institutions that are supposed to be investigating this kind of thing. But he says that since the drug economy is effectively recession-proof, the money the syndicates put into a lot of big banks became a relatively risk free way for the institutions to begin lending to each other again and circulating money uh through the system and just as a an FYI here whenever you hear me refer to legitimate capital or legitimate businesses please remember that my tongue is lodged very firmly in my cheek when I say that because i i think it's beyond dispute that no drug cartel is going to be responsible for the impending climate apocalypse in quite the same way that something legitimate like Shell or Chevron will be. So just bear that in mind going forward. I'm just using it as a way to distinguish, you know, the, the light and dark economy. So naturally, the British Banking Association was extremely sniffy about Costas' claims. Uh, They said that they personally had not witnessed any laundering activity during the recession. But, you know, come on. I mean, these are the same institutions that told us that, uh, you know, the housing market could never crash. So it's estimated that drug money alone accounts for between 1% and 2% of global GDP. And as much as 3% of world GDP is the product of money laundering. So, you know, not just the profits from drugs, but the profits from all kinds of other illegal activities. And as of 2015, the total value of the global drug trade was pegged at $700 billion. Some people put it as high as $1.5 trillion. And these are all estimates. For all we know, it's, it's likely much, much higher. And all that money has to go somewhere. It has to soak upwards into the legitimate world of business and finance. Put simply, drug money shapes the world that we live in. It's no coincidence that HSBC started as a colonial bank in Hong Kong and it was founded by men who made much of their money from the opium that the British were forcing the Chinese to buy back in the 19th century. And 150 years on, here is the same bank doing business with the most violent drug cartels of the 21st century, you know instead of the most violent drug cartel of the 19th century, which was the British Empire. Um, And the knock-on effects of this, are very interesting to try and contemplate as well, because you may have politicians who are otherwise completely oblivious to all of this dark money flowing around them, but who are nevertheless making decisions and, and shaping policy that is influenced even three four five steps removed by people with ties to the the drug economy so you know a drug dealer wants a particular business regulations uh changed or you know something they want something doing with the property development you know so they've got they have an easier time of it laundering their money through the property market so they pay someone who pays someone, who pays someone who knows a politician who can take it upon themselves to go and, you know, change those, those rules and regulations on behalf of a, a drug dealer that he's never met, he's completely unaware exists, but who is nevertheless influencing the way that politician thinks and the way that politician approaches their office. I mean, organized crime is a business like any other business and so it will seek to lobby and shape political policy where it's beneficial to its own, you know, economic objectives. Now it probably won't surprise you to know that as of 2021 HSBC is still at it and all the stern warnings and piddling fines in the world likely won't dissuade them from continuing to work with uh, drug cartels and other organized crime groups. And after HSBC announced their um, new era of honest banking, the US Department of Justice installed a team of independent monitors at the bank to oversee its transactions for five years. And immediately, the limits of what they could do were very strictly curtailed and policed. At most, they could offer a few mild suggestions and file a few reports with the DOJ about their concerns, but it was obvious that both the bank And the U.S. government were going through the motions and waiting for the scandal to blow over. Now, a neat trick HSBC developed was to outsource their money laundering activity to other banks that they were connected to in some way. And once the DOJ got around to declaring these smaller institutions illegitimate, HSBC would simply outsource the work to another one and another and so on, kind of like a game of narco whack-a-mole. Now, at a time when the DOJ was supposed to be closely scrutinizing every penny that moved through HSBC, the bank worked with the Vida Panama Bank uh, conducting $300 million in shady transactions on behalf of drug syndicates linked to the Wakida family who run Vida Panama. Uh, The DOJ started to issue secrecy notices around HSBC's various dealings instead of investigating them. It was just easier that way and this effectively helped the bank cover up its activity. HSBC also mostly failed to implement any of the anti-money laundering reforms that it had devised at the urging of the US government, and it continued to work with money launderers for the Sinaloa and Norte del Valle cartels, as well as syndicates further afield in places like Turkey, West Europe, uh, and other regions of South America and, and the Far East. In fact, the biggest reform that HSBC seems to have undertaken since 2012 is to create a system of plausible deniability by decentralizing its operations and allowing regional branches to operate independently of central leadership kind of like vassal states uh, where the central HSBC headquarters are kind of like the the sovereign <laughs> but then they have all these client states that surround them. Uh, The money still flows in and up, but as long as HSBC is operating relatively cleanly inside the U.S., which is where the DOJ's authority effectively ends, then any other activity is outside the remit of the U.S.-based independent monitors. So we have a broad idea of how drugs and the economy interact and how important narco profits are to keeping the banks flush and everything taking over But what about the state itself and intelligence agencies? How do countries like the US use the underground economy to further imperial aims? Well, that's where things get even weirder and darker. Now, we said before on this show that given the huge profits to be made out of drug trafficking, if you're running an intelligence op and you need access to easy funding that is difficult to trace, you would be crazy to ignore the drug trade, which brings us to the very odd relationship between the US security state and drug cartels south of the border. So this is kind of like a little trip back through time for the show because this is the part of the episode where I once again get to mangle many beautiful foreign languages for your listening pleasure. You can't really talk about the US state and its dealings with um, the, the drug trade in South America without talking about Iran-Contra but it's pretty well known as that story so I'm not going to rehash it in full. Instead, I think if we nibble around the edges of it and use different threads to kind of explore different aspects of the utility of drugs, that will probably uh, be something a little different and hopefully something a little more interesting than what we already know about the the subject. Because what's interesting about Iran-Contra, first and foremost, is the way that the operation which was ostensibly in direct conflict with the U.S. government's so-called war on drugs, well, it actually dovetailed with the policy quite neatly. Um, Because after all, abroad, the CIA's involvement in cocaine trafficking funded U.S. wars of aggression against leftist governments like the Sandinistas, while the drugs that flowed into U.S. inner cities helped to kind of turbocharge the militarization of the U.S. police and security state while expanding the private prison industry. Uh, the N- Nixon's administration had seen heroin as a very neat way to pacify a restive urban population and to discredit both black emancipation efforts and the 60s counterculture, particularly the anti-war left. Uh, now, as described by Nixon's domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman here, quote, "'Do you understand what I'm saying?' we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily we could disrupt those communities we could arrest their leaders raid their homes break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news did we know that we were lying about the drugs of course we did by the 1980s, the crack epidemic and the intended violence had the effect of fracturing African American communities at an accelerated rate, uh, justifying, you know, it, expansions in police and federal agency budgets and ensuring that a number of young Black Americans, you know, the the kind who formed the vanguard of Black liberation movements in the 50s and the 60s, well, ensured that they were instead forced to grow up in virtual war zones with very few choices available other than to join local street gangs for protection and to make a living or else fall into addiction and you know either choice would likely result in death or being processed into the for-profit prison system and used as a source of virtual slave labor Uh, the u.s drug war is a still an example of how US foreign and domestic policy quite often mirror and complement each other. I mean, consider the the economic and strategic incentive for staff in US law enforcement agencies here. Because, you know, the DEA and the CIA, when they're not profiting <clears throat> from drug trafficking directly, both of them rely on the drug trade as a way to justify their continued existence and budget increases. Uh, It's a very similar dynamic to the one that drives the FBI to manufacture terrorist attacks in order to make easy cases and pad out their resumes. If you think about it like this as well, the presence of uh, the drug trade and the violence that surrounds it in US inner cities justifies the cops effectively invading and occupying uh, those neighborhoods and patrolling them much like a colonial police force would. And you see that same dynamic kind of play out in South America as well, where the very presence of the cartels gives the US justification to interfere in the politics of the countries concerned, you know, Mexico, Colombia, and so on. So, Guillermo Terazes Villanueva, who was an official and spokesman for the Mexican state of Chihuahua, uh... He said in 2012 that the CIA and the DEA, quote, don't fight drug traffickers. Instead, they try to manage the trade. It's like pest control companies. If you finish off the pests, you are out of a job. If the drug war ends tomorrow, so do their careers. Uh, now, the, the Mexican drug war, and, and this is the open conflict between the Mexican army and the drug cartels, it's said to have officially begun in December of 2006, when 6,500 Mexican soldiers were deployed by President Felipe Calderón to fight the cartels. And as of the time of Villanueva's statement in 2012, 55,000 people had died in the ensuing violence. And a total number of all victims dead as a result of drug-related homicides in the conflict is now estimated at around a quarter of a million people. That, that is staggering it's, it's almost an unbelievable figure. For context, about 130,000 people died in the entirety of the Yugoslav Wars of the 1990s. Uh, in the Mexican drug war, the U.S. plays the role of intelligence consultant and equipment supplier with some training thrown in for good measure by private military contractors and security firms all under the auspices of the Merida Initiative. The Merida initiative has meant the creation of new bureaucratic departments and offices, uh, extra funding for key players in US law enforcement and security agencies, and the outsourcing of key aspects of the operation to private security firms and military contractors, and this expansion of the security state abroad is a hard-headed and deliberate policy the US government has pursued time and again around drugs throughout the years. Back in the 1990s, the Rand Drug Policy Research Center recommended that the Clinton administration take the $3 billion in funding that they were planning to give to US law enforcement agencies and spend it instead on drug treatment and prevention programs, which were seen as infinitely more effective than the endless grind of locking people up for years at a time. The Clinton administration uh, refused flat out and the money was given to the cops and the feds instead. As another example of how the drug war has become a kind of self-reproducing business, consider that El Chapo and several of his lieutenants in the Sinaloa cartel they were in all likelihood working directly with U.S. federal agencies as informants, even as they stacked bodies up to the fifth floor. A kind of middle manager in the cartel spoke anonymously to Newsweek in 2012 and described one of his bosses encouraging him to contact ICE, you know, the, uh, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, and offer them information about rival cartels in exchange for a more of a hands-off approach. Now, Sinaloa at the time was at war with the Caillo Fuentes Cartel. And part of El Chapo's strategy seems to have been encouraging some of his key guys to become informants for US federal agencies in order to remove his competitors when he found it impossible to bribe or kill them. And ICE, for their part, while they were fully on board with this idea, don't forget that ICE agents are generally considered gigantic cowards even by other u.s agencies and the sinaloa cartel has the muscle and the firepower to confront law enforcement head on Uh, el chapo wanted to offer ice and the dea some easy headline grabbing arrests and all they had to do in return was ignore his own operation and according to court documents reported on by el universal senior DEA and Sinaloa figures met in secret more than 50 times between the year 2000 and 2009. And then consider Los Zetas. Uh, They are widely regarded as one of the most dangerous and violent organized crime groups in the world. Uh, Los Zetas was born out of an elite branch of the Mexican military. The, And we're going to screw this pronunciation up, so... We should do a drinking game for this. Have a drink, take a shot now, because I'm going to screw this up. Take a shot for each word I screw up. So, this elite branch of the Mexican military was called the Grupo Aeromovil de Fuerzas Especiales, or the Air Mobile Special Forces Group, uh, shortened to GAFE. And this group were initially established and trained to conduct counterinsurgency and anti-drug operations Uh, they were deployed when mexico hosted the world cup in 1986 and again in the early 1990s to suppress the zapatistas who rose up against the spread of neoliberalism in mexico and against the north american free trade agreement Um, the gafe fought the Zapatistas in and around Chiapas and it's no accident that the GAFE received training from Israeli special forces and the US 7th special forces group at Fort Bragg as well as (laughs) the School of the Americas and this was before, during and after their anti-Zapatista operations and the GAFE were taught everything from psychological warfare to enhanced interrogation techniques, jungle and amphibious warfare, ambush and guerrilla fighting strategies, intelligence gathering, hand-to-hand combat, heavy weapons training, you name it. And they used all this first in their effort to put down the Zapatista uprising, and much of what they got up to during that conflict is still classified. They were used effectively as a tool to suppress all dissent to NAFTA and the new economic arrangement between the US and Mexico. And with the liberalization of the trade routes between the two countries, the amount of drugs and weapons flowing across the border absolutely surged, which triggered more cartel violence that the Zetas would end up assisting in. The name... Los Zetas is a reference to a radio code that is used by high-ranking security and military commanders in Mexico. The first batch of defectors from the GAFE to the Gulf Cartel, they all used z uh, one Z1, Z2, Z3 and so on to denote their rank and they got their start as they got their start as muscle in the drug trade around 1997. Uh, providing security to a Gulf cartel boss called, ready the shots, Ocel Cardenas Guilan, who was engaged in a brutal war for control of the coke trade along the border with Texas. And the estimates of how many defectors from the Mexican army there were vary. Uh, I've seen guesses put in the figure at anywhere from 30 to 200 special forces troops who sort of comprised the nucleus of what became Los Zetas now the money that Guilan was offering was much higher than what they were getting in the military and after a spell as his personal bodyguard and hit squad Los Zetas broke away around 2010 and formed their own syndicate which triggered an astonishingly violent war with the gulf cartel Um, Los Zetas became notorious for the level of violence that they used and a scorched earth policy that they operated uh, when they dealt with rivals and civilians. They've been known to mount the severed heads of their enemies on pikes along the roads leading into towns that they control. And they also post propaganda videos online depicting their torture sessions and executions. In 2010, in San Fernando, they kidnapped a convoy of migrant workers from Central America on their way to find work in the US. And when it became clear that you know, they didn't have the money to pay a ransom and that they, they weren't willing to work as uh, mules or carriers for Los Zetas, all of them were marched into a ranch and massacred, 72 people, dead. A year later, they massacred another 193 people in the same area uh, who they suspected of collaborating with the Gulf cartel. Uh, Informants and captured La Zetas members have described how recruits are trained in camps that are modeled after the facilities that the founding members were trained in back in North America by U.S. special forces. And everything they learned in the States, that's passed along to new members to be used in drug and sex and arms trafficking, as well as in conflict with other cartels. And they even have a system of honors and medals that they give to enforcers who distinguish themselves in some way. I will be doing a much more in-depth look at the cartels and the Mexican drug war in future episodes, but I'm going to refocus on the CIA for now. And if you haven't read Gary Webb's Dark Alliance series on the CIA's involvement in drug trafficking, then I highly recommend that you seek it out. Uh, He was a great journalist and he did more than anybody to expose the real origins of the crack epidemic and the role of the cia in it all and for his efforts um establishment figures in u.s media basically chased him out of the industry and circled the wagons around the cia and he ended up dying in 2004 in what was ruled a suicide by a coroner but if you want a rabbit hole to fall down ask yourself how someone commits suicide by shooting himself twice in the back of the head So anyway, to get a feel for how the CIA approached the drug trade in the 1980s, remember that the US war on drugs was only fought against dealers who were unlucky enough not to have made a deal with the CIA, the DEA, or the FBI. And one of the key string pullers throughout the decade was our friend Poppy Bush, who by then, he was Reagan's vice president. And Bush's role in the drug war, like his role in basically every other american deep political event it's minimized and downplayed to the point where it's become forbidden for respectable journalists and researchers to talk about it but he understood better than almost anybody that there was a lot of power and money to be won under the guise of fighting the threat of drugs to america's youth so you have iran contra of course but you also have the lesser explored aspects of poppy bushes decade such as uh, the US and its local partners spraying massive amounts of herbicide on farms in South America even ones that had nothing to do with the narcotics trade ostensibly to eradicate the coca plant but this usually ended up uh, spilling over and it, it left hundreds of farmers absolutely destitute and forced to abandon their land to local wealthy elites or predatory, foreign, usually American capital. And a lot of these businesses had connections in some way with the Reagan administration. Once he finally became president, Bush let his authoritarian tendencies run absolutely wild. Uh, He pushed for harsher and harsher penalties for drug-related crimes. And his policies led to twice as many people being locked up for drug possession than there were people in prison for selling them. Uh, he also advocated uh, forfeiture and, and property confiscation even for the presumption of involvement in drug trafficking and this wound up destroying tens of thousands of people's lives just because they were caught with the right amount of weed or coke to be labeled a drug dealer without any further investigation a u.s navy lieutenant called Al Martin, tells a very interesting story about a conversation he had at dinner with Poppy Bush and Felix Rodriguez. Now, Rodriguez was a Cuban exile and CIA officer. Uh, He'd taken part in the Bay of Pigs invasion, and he was also intimately involved in the Phoenix program, training assassination squads and personally flying helicopters in the field, as well as playing a role, supposedly, in the hit on Che Guevara in Bolivia in the 60s. By the time Al Martin was meeting him and Bush for dinner in 1985, uh, Rodriguez was deeply involved in the Contra cocaine trafficking op, and he performed a similar role to Oliver North for Poppy Bush. He was someone who would get his hands dirty on Bush's behalf. Uh, he'd already set up channels of communication between the Medellin cartel and the agency, and some witnesses say that he funneled as much as $10 million from... Medellin to the Contras throughout the 1980s. Now, Lieutenant Martin recalled that throughout this dinner that he was at, Bush kept talking about the war against the Sandinistas and what he called his big lie principle. And Martin was unsure of the connection until a few days later when the Iran-Contra scandal broke. What Bush had been slyly alluding to at the dinner suddenly made sense. If a lie was big enough, the American public wouldn't believe the truth when it came out. So if, say, the US government was declaring publicly that it was conducting a war on drugs while financing right-wing terrorists with cocaine money, and that was exposed, people would have such an emotional investment in what they'd been told by their elected officials for years that they'd be extremely reluctant to acknowledge that they'd been had and the same went for the media who were reluctant to pursue the cia connection to the drug trade and very eager to smear people like gary webb as frauds and the fact that bush only lost his re-election bid because of some bullshit of the economy and what eventually happened to gary webb and bush's subsequent rehabilitation as a steadfast patriot during the trump years I think that's proof that Poppy was pretty much completely correct about the big lie. Now, Rodriguez is another connecting piece between Bush and an episode from the 1980s. Before we go on, one thing The Wire absolutely nailed uh, is the difference between chasing drugs and chasing drug money. Uh, The Lester Freeman character said it best. You follow drugs, you get drug addicts and drug dealers, but you start to follow the money and you don't know where the fuck it's going to take you a DEA intelligence agent called Enrique Camarina, or Kiki, as he was known to his colleagues and friends. Uh, He discovered the truth of this in about the most gruesome and brutal way possible in 1985. Now, Camarina excelled at working informants to find out where cartel growing fields were and feeding the information they gave him to teams of DEA agents and Mexican military officers who would then go on to destroy the crops with fire or herbicide. After one of Camarina's tip-offs led to the destruction of a cannabis farm worth about $8 billion, he was abducted in February the next year, tortured for two days, and killed. The DEA launched the biggest murder investigation they ever conducted. The official story has it that the kidnapping was coordinated entirely by the Guadalajara cartel, working with corrupt local police. Except... Two ex-DEA agents, Phil Jordan and Hector Berra Hayes and a CIA contract pilot called Tosh Plumley, who flew drugs into the States for the agency. Well, they've since come forward and said that the cartel had been given the OK to kidnap Camarina by the CIA and the torture and interrogation session that he was subjected to was actually covertly filmed by hidden cameras that were monitored by CIA officers. And the reason is because Camarena had been growing increasingly vexed by the futility of the drug war for every stash house the DEA raided and drug crop that they destroyed. A half dozen more immediately sprung up to replace them. It was like sweeping leaves on a windy day. So Camarena slowly came to the conclusion that the trick would be to trace the financial networks underpinning the drug trade and use what the DEA learned to go after the top-level operators and leave the lower-ranking operators alone. According to the, the three whistleblowers, Camarena actually put together a fairly accurate map of where the money was going, and it seems that he stumbled onto some aspects of the CIA's role in gun and drug running for the Contras. Félix Rodríguez figures into all of this because he was the one who introduced Juan Mata, uh, a Honduran drug dealer. He introduced him to the Guadalajara cartel and he gave him the okay on behalf of the CIA to set up a trafficking route to Mexico as long as he gave a percentage of the profits to the agency, which they then invested in the Contra war. And Camarena uncovered at least some aspects of this Massive operation. And it's likely that the CIA monitored his interrogation and murder to verify how much he'd actually discovered. Now, Michael Levin, an undercover DEA agent for 25 years and a drug war fanatic, he said in an interview in the 1990s, quote, I personally was involved in a deep cover case that went to the top of the drug world in three countries. The CIA killed it. Now the case he's referring to was an elaborate undercover drug deal that his team set up in 1987. And for the sake of time, I'll quote him verbatim here. Quote, with the help of the Mexican military, we were to transit cocaine from Bolivia through Mexico into the United States. We had hidden videos of Mexican Colonel Jorge Carranza, bodyguard of incoming Mexican President Carlos Salinas de Gortari, telling me that once our deal went through, we would have an open door into the U.S. through Mexico. We immediately sent the videos to then Attorney General Edwin Meese, but Meese blew our cover. He called the Attorney General of Mexico and warned him about us. Why? As we found out, the CIA was behind the whole thing. The people we were about to lock up were cia assets and you can be the biggest drug dealer in the world but if you have any political influence in your country which most drug dealers do the cia will hire you he also claims that the cia actually helped create a bolivian drug cartel called la corporacion one of the early pioneers of the crack cocaine trade and Of course, there's this final chilling line there about how drug traffickers with political influence in their countries of origin and where they operate, how they'll be hired by the CIA. And we'll see that bearing out time and again as we continue on here. CIA role in South America's drug war is a rabbit warren that you could get lost in forever and the smuggling networks that they utilized it can't even really be called smuggling networks as such because they had such free and open use of US air bases and private airports it's 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 not like they had to sweat customs or the DEA uh Mina airport in Arkansas that holds an almost mythical significance for a lot of researchers into this stuff, because this is said to be one of the primary locations for the CIA's Coke importation and op. And more than that, the agency was using this airport while Bill Clinton was governor of the state, and it's said, allegedly, that in exchange for his help in keeping the operation locked down, the agency helped Slick Willie's career along, including scaring off potential paternity suit claimants and women who were going to report him for sexual harassment or sexual assault and using their press contacts to publish a very favorable, flattering coverage of him. But again, allegedly. I do not actually have information that could lead to the arrest of Bill Clinton or Clintons. So we have some other areas we need to cover before we wrap up. So I'm going to reluctantly leave South America with two more examples of how the US government manipulated drug trafficking to serve its own strategic aims in the region. And the first comes from Bolivia. And this is also adjacent to the topic of the post-war fascist underground that we've discussed in other places on this show. And once again, for the people at the back, the Third Reich was never actually destroyed. It was instead stripped for parts and incorporated into liberal capitalism and the story of klaus barbie's time in bolivia and how he made himself available to the u.s intelligence state in the country is a particularly awful example of what i'm talking about so barbie had been the head of the gestapo in lyon he was tasked with stamping out the french resistance and he ran a regime of torture and murder to even unnerved some of his fellow Nazis. He relished personally taking part in interrogation sessions, and he was even awarded an Iron Cross by Hitler for capturing the leader of the French resistance. The estimates of how many people he killed during his time in France range from thirteen to 15,000 people. And one of his most notorious orders was the uh, deportation of 44 Jewish orphans to Auschwitz. Now, with the war coming to an end, Bobby knew that he had to get out of Europe before the Allies caught up with him. And what he didn't know at that point was that U.S. military intelligence were deeply impressed with the stories that they'd heard about his campaign against the resistance, and there had been no need for him to feel a moment of discomfort. When the Americans picked him up, a U.S. Army counterintelligence officer from the 66th detachment called Robert Taylor put together a flattering... Uh, dossier on Barbie, which he submitted to his bosses. And in it, Taylor wrote quote Barbie is an honest intellectual man, a man absolutely without fear. He is strongly anti communist and a Nazi idealist who believes that he and his beliefs were betrayed by the Nazis in power. And Barbie was then recruited as an intelligence asset by the Americans, and he and his family were smuggled out of Europe with the help of the Catholic Church through uh, the port of Genoa. The Americans were already planning for the long term and the most obvious place to send someone with Barbie's skill set to their way of thinking was South America. The US government was nervous about the possibility of communist revolution so close to its borders and someone like Barbie who had a knack for hunting down reds and terrorizing restive populations. You know, someone who would be indebted to them forever if they could help him escape a death sentence. Well, it seemed like the most logical thing to do was to set him up with a new identity first in Argentina and then in Bolivia. With the support of his American handlers, Barbie made himself useful to the Bolivian dictatorship as soon as he landed there in 1951. Uh, He was going under a new name now, Klaus Altman, which... It's probably the stupidest alias I've ever heard of. And it didn't take him long to enter Bolivian high society and his connections to the underground arms trade helped him form very close links to a succession of Bolivian dictators. And he actually became a lieutenant colonel in the Bolivian army in 1964. And he brought everything he'd learned during World War II to bear. He ran the same basic rolling program of assassinations and torture and suppression of dissidents. And he set up a network of concentration camps where opponents of the regime were locked up. He also taught the Bolivian army how to conduct effective torture sessions. And he created a group called the Fiancés of Death. And this was a kind of paramilitary intelligence group composed of fascists from Germany, France and Italy. And they worked in a contract capacity for the Bolivian regime. They were kind of like a mini Reich embedded within the state that could be deployed to put down trade union organizing, progressive movements, or just pick off journalists and politicians who were asking too many questions about the regime. For an idea of how big and far-reaching the global underground network of fascists was by this point, consider that during all of this, Barbie was on the payroll of the West German government, the Gellan organization, the part of Operation Gladio, in uh berlin and the cia's eyes and ears in cold war europe that was sending him a monthly stipend throughout most of his time uh in bolivia beginning in the mid 1960s and on top of this barbie worked with none other than stefano della chia to organize the 1981 coup in bolivia which we'll get to in a moment Uh, stefano landed in bolivia after fleeing italy for his role in the strategy of tension uh, where he'd helped set up two of the major italian neo-fascist terror cells the national vanguard and the new order and he also helped organize the failed coup uh, in italy in 1970 and just like barbie he was going to play a key role in Operation Condor, which was the anti-left assassination program that South American regimes embarked on in the 1970s at the behest of the CIA. He was also a very close friend of Licio Jeli, who was the head of the Propaganda Due Masonic Lodge. We've talked about them before. And he maintained links to the Grey Wolves and uh, Conta Guerrilla, the, the Turkish gladiator cell, and performed contract hits for Pinochet in Chile as well barbie's bodyguard and confidant a guy called alvaro de castro he was another neo-nazi and he had close ties to cartels all over south america barbie was a silent partner in a number of austrian arms firms and he established a working relationship with some of the biggest coat traffickers in the region at the time supplying them with discounted military grade weapons at first and then meeting directly with drug lords in Bolivia like Roberto Suárez Gómez. Gómez was the boss of La Corporación, and he was also possibly the most powerful drug dealer on earth by the late 1970s. He was also very close to the Colombian Medellín cartel, uh, particularly Pablo Escobar. And through Gómez... Uh, Barbie actually met Escobar face to face and managed to secure a deal where his fiancés of death would provide security for the Medellin cartel's cocaine trafficking routes, you know, guarding coca paste from the farms in Bolivia all along the smuggling route to the cartel's processing facilities in Colombia. And supposedly, instead of making a direct profit for his security work, barbie and his intelligence handlers requested that escobar contribute towards the anti-communist campaign in south america financially and in exchange american authorities would take a less confrontational approach to his outfit now i should point out here that eventually i do want to do a big episode about colombia because the betrayal of escobar by the u.s security state is a very very uh, interesting story in its own right but That'll have to wait for a while. Gomez would eventually be brought down by an undercover operation spearheaded by none other than Michael Levine. But before that, in 1980, he decided to finance the overthrow of the Bolivian government, what's now known as the the cocaine coup or the NARCO coup. And in coordination with his American handlers, Barbie helped organize the actual on-the-ground operation Uh, He imported a number of tanks for the Bolivian military to use and he brought in his fiancés of death to lend strategic support. And once the regime was in place, the new regime, which was effectively a front for La Corporación, uh, Gomez had his key guys move to areas of strategic importance in the government. And you have to imagine Pablo was watching this in Colombia and According to insiders from the time, he was optimistic that uh, the CIA might like to finance a coup over there as well and make him the president. Um, And certainly something like the cocaine coup makes something like that seem much more feasible. So the new Bolivian regime, it crumbled pretty quickly considering the money behind it. And when a democratically elected government took power, Barbie was finally arrested in 1983 and deported to France to stand trial for war crimes. And somewhat inevitably, the US government found itself scrambling to explain why they'd extended nearly uh, four decades worth of protection to a Nazi war criminal and drug trafficker. And they managed to sidestep most of the tougher questions by citing national security concerns. And that was pretty much that. Uh, Barbie died of leukemia in prison. The the second and last story from South America that I want to cover, and one that's going to kind of set us up for a couple of other things I want to get to further on in this episode, is the US invasion of Panama in 1989. And this is one of the spookiest, quote-unquote, wars that the American empire has ever, quote-unquote, fought. And once again... There at the center of events is the figure of Poppy Bush. So what was the Panama War about? Why did the U.S. invade? Well, the most common reasons given by Poppy Bush were to protect the security of the Panama Canal and safeguard the lives of the 35,000 U.S. citizens who were living in the country from the threat posed by Panama's gangsterismo-style President uh, Manuel Noriega. And Bush also said that Noriega had turned Panama into a global center of drug trafficking and money laundering. And while that was true, this is quite a head scratcher of a justification because it's now well established that Noriega had been on the CIA payroll since the 1970s. They were paying him upwards of $200,000 a year to safeguard American interests in the region. And the agency had also given him a license to sell drugs, including during the years when Poppy Bush was head of the CIA. There is no way that he was ignorant of what Noriega was all about. I think the problem was that Noriega didn't really have the same fanatical anti-communist credentials as his contemporaries. Uh, he was pretty much willing to work with anyone if there was a profit to be made. In the 1970s, he sold guns to the leftist guerrillas fighting against the regime in El Salvador, and he also sold American weapons to the Sandinistas in Nicaragua just before they came to power in 1979. Uh, The CIA knew about this, but they were wary of upsetting their arrangement with him. However, once he became de facto ruler of Panama in 1981, Noriega did actually make an effort to forge a much closer relationship with the CIA and the U.S. government. He allocated the CIA space in Panama to set up listening person training camps for the contras and he met with poppy bush in 1983 to work out how to keep the contras supplied with funds and weapons and throughout the 1980s nariega worked with most of the big cartels in south america and he moved his own shipments of drugs and guns into the u.s with the cia very carefully looking the other way despite their own intelligence reports concluding that he was one of the biggest suppliers of cocaine to the states. So by the time the Iran-Contra scandal was unfolding, it was all getting a little bit embarrassing, this kind of weird relationship they had with Noriega. And there were plenty of Washington and Langley insiders who were growing increasingly nervous that Noriega's role as a US asset might implicate some extremely powerful figures in American politics, including Poppy Bush. Now, I don't know how true this is. All I can say is that I've read three different sources, people who were inside his campaign uh, during the, the, his run for a second term. They've all said that he was rumored to have been contemplating having Ross Perot assassinated because Perot would not stop prying into CIA drug trafficking. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do know that's what these three sources have said. So there was a sense, especially as Nariaga turned to the USSR and Cuba and Libya for support, that he was beginning to slip the leash. And on top of this, there are rumors that He'd covertly filmed U.S. diplomats and CIA officers at orgies that he held in his residences around Panama, and he was planning to leverage this as blackmail material. Uh, Bush pushed through the invasion, codenamed Operation Just Cause, and the war, such as it was, lasted for just over a month, and Noriega was captured by American forces and extradited to the U.S. During his trial, he was forbidden to discuss his work for the CIA, or the exact nature of his relationship with President Bush. About 3,000 Panamanian civilians were killed during the month-long conflict, and the drug trade was at best marginally disrupted. Noriega epitomizes the mafia-style approach the CIA takes to foreign policy. As soon as he lived his usefulness, he was removed. And we haven't even really scratched the surface of the CIA and U.S. government's involvement in the drug trade in in South America and the Caribbean. Uh, There was the time the CIA accidentally sent a ton of cocaine from Venezuela into the US in 1993. And in the ensuing uproar, the CIA claimed that this was actually an experiment, a very clever experiment, that was supposed to uncover how drugs move through US customs and along the distribution channels across the country. You know, kind of like, I suppose injecting contrast dye into someone to see how their circulatory system works? I mean, sure, of course, yeah. That's that's what you were doing, of course. Um, in July of this year, I came across a, a pretty wild story about the DEA and what it's been getting up to in Haiti. Uh, two DEA whistleblowers reported that in 2015, a Colombian ship carrying hundreds of kilos of cocaine and heroin docked in Port-au-Prince, and according to CNN, quote, not only did the DEA assist the Haitian National Police in destroying some of the drug evidence and paid them $1,500 for the cost, but most of the cocaine and heroin smuggled on the ship into a private seaport near Port-au-Prince went missing. The 700 to 800 kilos of cocaine and 300 kilos of heroin hidden among bags of sugar in the hull had an estimated street value of $100 million. And when these whistleblowers first came forward, the attorney general at the time, Jeff Sessions, he allowed the DEA to investigate itself without any oversight. And almost all the big mainstream outlets that have covered this story have been very careful to frame and pepper their articles with words like bungled, mishandled, mistakes, botched, bumbling. So basically painting the DEA as a a hapless bunch of well-meaning folks who got in over their heads. I, I would humbly submit that it seems more like the DEA officers bungled nearly $100 million worth of drugs into offshore retirement funds, you know, if you, if you catch my drift. So I hope that from this opening hour or so you, you know a little bit more about uh, drug money and finance and how the CIA and other federal agencies have benefited from the drug wars in South America. Um, But that mostly focused on cocaine right up against America's borders. Um, What I think we should do for the last bit of this show is to get a better feel for the role that heroin plays in uh, U.S. conflicts and U.S. imperial designs. I think we should move a few thousand miles across the world to Europe and the middle east and we will examine the role of heroin in three different wars: the soviet afghan conflict the yugoslav wars and the war on terror now bear in mind as with the first bit this is just meant to be a very broad kind of overview of uh, the utility of the drugs trade we will be going much deeper on all these topics sooner or later So yeah, we'll start in the late 1970s. And what we find is um, a US that is facing a series of crises that are threatening its strategic position in the Middle East. And chief amongst them was the overthrow of the Iranian Shah in 1979. With the revolution, the Americans lost a very valuable client state in the region. And they were humiliated again when the Islamic Revolutionary Guard seized the U.S. embassy in Tehran and took the staff inside hostage for over a year. And then in December of 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Now, I should probably say here that the Soviets get portrayed as in the Western sort of, media sphere. They get portrayed as just launching themselves hell for leather into a war in the country. But in fact, the idea of putting troops on the ground there had vexed the Soviet leadership for for quite some time. Not that I'm defending what they got up to once they actually landed in the country. See, the reason the situation got to the point that it did, and I'll be as brief as I can here, but basically the Afghan army overthrew Afghanistan's leader, uh, Mohammed Daoud, and Noor Muhammad Taraki, who was the leader of the Marxist People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. Well, the military were quite sympathetic to them. So he became the chairman of the revolutionary government, and it didn't take long for conflicts to start to flare up between the different left-wing factions in Afghanistan, you know, as in Afghanistan, as all over the world. Um, and the program of... Kind of progressive reforms that the PDPA tried to implement, so you know, uh, literacy programs for women and girls, land redistribution, that type of thing. Uh, all of that was met with fierce resistance from Afghanistan's conservative communities. Uh, Taraki was in frequent contact with the Soviets throughout this period, and he was asking for advice and even military support. But Brezhnev was extremely reluctant to commit Soviet troops. He fairly accurately predicted what would happen if they did invade in a response that he sent to yet another request by Taraki for uh, a Soviet presence. Quote, We believe that it would be a fatal mistake to commit ground troops. If our troops went in, the situation in your country would not improve. On the contrary, it would get worse. Our troops would have to struggle not only with an external aggressor, but with a significant part of your own people. And the people would never forgive such things. So long story short, Teraki was clipped by his former comrade Hafizullah Amin. Amin had felt increasingly uh, marginalized in the post-revolution environment. And this whole period is kind of a tangled spaghetti mess of factional intrigue and double and triple crosses. So all we need to know for this episode is that the Soviets, who already distrusted Amin, were appalled that he killed Taraki. So they launched Operation Storm 333, where they seized the presidential palace in Afghanistan and assassinated Amin. Now a move this big caused a domino effect that meant the Soviets felt obligated to move into Afghanistan and try to prop up their clients as unrest spread across the country and various regional insurgencies began to develop. And what the CIA had codenamed Operation Cyclone which was their effort to arm, train, and fund an opposition to the Afghan government and the Soviets. Well, that was primarily, as um, US government figures have since said, that was primarily an attempt to give the Soviets their own Vietnam, by which they meant a very long, very expensive quagmire that sapped morale and triggered uh, political dissent and unrest back home. And six months before the USSR invaded, the CIA, in conjunction with MI6, had already been laying the groundwork for what became Operation Cyclone, uh, supplying weapons and munitions to the local fighters who would make up uh, what, what was called the Mujahideen. And they weren't particularly quiet about this either. Uh, CIA director Robert Gates has since said that the point of the CIA's activity at the time was to be visible enough that it would goad the Soviets into invading. And all told, by the end of the 1980s, the CIA was funding the Mujahideen insurgency to the tune of about $670 million a year. And most of it was funneled through Pakistan's intelligence agency, the ISI. The ISI also solicited financing and strategic support from Egypt and the Saudis, and you know the UAE and whatnot, and moved much of the Mujahideen funds through the Bank of Commerce and Credit International. Heroin would play a major role in the American and Pakistani strategy as the years rolled on, and laundering the profits from heroin became um, almost as big a part of the the mission as did, you know, fighting the Soviets. Effectively, the CIA needed to keep all that money away from uh, regulators and, and official scrutiny. So as it had with Castle Bank, when it was laundering cocaine money, and then eventually Nugent in Australia, uh, it turned to Bank of Commerce and Credit International, which was, um, I think I've mentioned this before, but it, it basically a, a spook bank, a gangster bank, And we will be talking about BCCI. I promise you we are getting to that eventually. It's part of um, the much bigger story that me and a a buddy of mine are wanting to tell you guys. So you've got uh, Spignu Brzezinski, who is Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. And he holds a meeting in 1980 with Egypt's Anwar Sadat and Pakistan's General Zia. And the aim is to sketch out how the program is going to work. How are they going to fight the Soviets effectively? And in an interesting contrast to how the CIA would end up handling the Contras, in Nicaragua, you know, quite direct, quite hands-on. Here instead, they elected to kind of delegate responsibility for running day-to-day anti-Soviet missions to the ISI, which of course is in keeping with the CIA's need for plausible deniability. And what they ended up doing a lot was deferring to the Pakistani's choices of which warlords and rebel commanders to support. And once the ISI had settled on who they wanted, they met a delegation of CIA bosses in uh, Peshawar, uh, near Pakistan's border with Afghanistan, and strongly recommended one figure in particular. That was Kabul University dropout, reactionary zealot, and heroin warlord Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, Now, his Hezbi Islamic group, it wasn't particularly popular or well-liked in Afghanistan at this point, but the ISI considered him their creation. Uh, His deep involvement in the opium trade was appealing to senior leadership uh, in Pakistani intelligence as a source of off-the-books funds, and his uh, fanatical religious beliefs appealed to the anti-communist thinking of both the ISI and the CIA. Uh, This was a guy who uh, he dedicated part of his organization solely to tracking down and throwing acid in the faces of girls who went to school. Uh, He was a guy whose outfit ran a nice side business, hijacking shipments of food and medical aid. And he was well known for killing other Mujahideen fighters uh, almost as often, if not more than he killed Soviet troops. He was so brutal and incompetent that the other uh, militants came to regard his group as a cancer on the movement as a whole. Uh, On one occasion, he started a firefight with a rival jihadi group that led to the deaths of two American journalists who were traveling with him. And this is in the context where uh, he personally met Margaret Thatcher as part of a PR exercise. And the British and American press establishment, they were pumping nonstop, pro-Mujahideen propaganda out on a daily basis. By the late 1980s, he was by far the biggest recipient of covert funds coming from the US and the Saudis via the ISI. Now, the CIA knew about all of this, and they, they knew about the ISI and the Mujahideen's heroin trafficking business, and at the very least, they did nothing to stop it. And even if they weren't directly involved in the trade themselves... And as we'll see, that is a huge if. CIA officers were acutely aware that the transport networks they'd set up to supply the resistance fighters in Afghanistan had very quickly been co-opted into facilitating the speedy movement of heroin and cash across the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Trucks from Pakistan would arrive uh, in Afghanistan full of weapons and ammo, and they'd leave stuffed with kilos of opium that was to be processed into heroin back in Pakistan. And at the same time, about 100 to 200 uh, clandestine heroin laboratories sprung up in Pakistan to cope with the influx of all this opium. The ISI and the CIA prevented the trucks from being intercepted by the police by issuing special travel papers to the drivers. And by 1992, the agency's own intelligence analysts were compiling reports demonstrating that drug kingpins, and the military intelligence community had created what we today call a deep state in Pakistan, and they were effectively running the country. Now, the boom in heroin trafficking during the Soviet-Afghan war is what was held as directly responsible for this. Now, as the Mujahideen took control of agricultural areas in Afghanistan, They ordered farmers to start growing opium poppies as a matter of urgency to continue funding their war in the northwest frontier province. This is the border region between Afghanistan and Pakistan. The opium harvest shot up as the fighting ground on Uh, 575 tons by 1986, eventually growing to 800 tons by 1988 and 2,000 tons by the end of the decade. And whenever an investigation into any of this was attempted, the CIA and the ISI would hastily step in to squash it. And of course, all that profit has to go somewhere. And once again, enter banks like BCCI and Deutsche Bank. Uh, General Zia and his CIA associates gave the biggest heroin traffickers in Pakistan and Afghanistan permission to start depositing their money in BCCI in the early 1980s by the end of the war. There were jihadis, generals, and spooks from America, Britain, Afghanistan, and Pakistan who had millions in dope money and kickbacks tucked away in offshore accounts. Uh, it's overlooked, really, what a gold rush the Soviet-Afghan war was for a certain kind of intelligence operative. So we should probably talk about the spillover or the, uh, the blowback effects of all this dope because while the vast majority of it went to Europe and the U.S., not all of it did. Um, a lot of it found its way into Pakistan, um, a nation without the infrastructure to handle a sudden spike in heroin addiction rates. So in 1979, Pakistan had a grand total of zero heroin addicts inside its borders. By 1989, it had about 2 million. This astronomical. Um, the Soviet soldiers fighting in Afghanistan, they were facing a kind of grinding and apparently never-ending engagement in a place that they didn't understand, miles away from home, and they were alternately bored and terrified. So they turned to heroin as a way to take the edge off, and when these soldiers rotated back to the USSR, they took heroin with them, and addiction rates among Soviet youth began to steadily creep upwards. Additionally, Uh, Soviet authorities at the time were highly suspicious of the CIA's activity and accused them several times of smuggling Afghan heroin into the USSR precisely to create an addiction epidemic. And then, of course, there's the fact that the increasingly wealthy and powerful drug lords in Afghanistan, uh, heading up their own armies and flush with guns and radical ideology, began to turn against the US and each other after the Soviets withdrew And the country descended into civil war. And the Soviets were still funding the Marxist government in the capital. And the CIA continued to back the Mujahideen militias closing in on Kabul. Uh, And throughout the 90s, the opium fields in Afghanistan continued to expand, um, even after the Taliban came to power in 1996, because when they first established themselves they were desperate for taxes and investment funds so they ordered an increase in the amount of opium that was being cultivated and impoverished workers kind of looking to support themselves however they could in the midst of uh, a country that had been devastated by continuous warfare well they took the ball and ran with it and you can't really blame them um it's no surprise that drug crops have become the only reliable source of income for many Afghans. Uh, as Alfred W. McCoy explains, quote, Opium generated a major demand for labor at a time of high post-war unemployment, while the traditional staple wheat required only 41 workdays per hectare. Opium needed 350 days. If we multiply 350 days by the 91,000 hectares harvested in 1999, then opium offered 30 days seasonal employment for over a million Afghans, or about a quarter of the potential workforce. And in addition to this, opium doesn't need as much resource-intensive work as other types of crops. Uh, The average opium field requires less than half the water you'd need for wheat, And when it's harvested, it sells for 10 times as much and it actually appreciates in value over time. And in an area with chronic water shortages and very little in the way of advanced storage infrastructure, it makes complete economic sense to grow as much food as you need to live on and sow the rest of your land with opium seeds. And one of the CIA bosses overseeing Operation Cyclone, uh, Charles Kogan, he gave an interview in 1995 where he said, quote, We didn't have the time to devote to an investigation of the drug trade. I don't think that we need to apologize for this. There was a fallout in terms of drugs, yes, but the main mission objective was accomplished. The Soviets left Afghanistan. The Taliban found itself confronted with a massive drought at the turn of the millennium and they were in need of diplomatic recognition so it could begin to negotiate for aid and support so it ordered a complete ban on opium production. And the UN says that this actually reduced the annual harvest by as much as 94%, but in the process, it had a direct impact on the economic welfare of Afghans. And on top of this, the UN hit the government, the Taliban, with sanctions because it continued to shelter Osama bin Laden. Although, the US sent the country 43 million dollars in humanitarian aid as a kind of a gesture of good faith. It's not much but the Taliban took this as a sign that diplomatic recognition you know was still a possibility. But the thing is it had made a crucial strategic mistake or rather it had made two. The first was in diverting the bulk of Afghanistan's agricultural industry to opium production uh, this is because the economy then effectively became dependent on heroin to fund basic social provisions and just about keep the country afloat um the second was in then abruptly banning this cultivation uh this led to a sudden drop in tax revenue which meant uh the people suffered and also the taliban would have very little to invest in building up its military capability as the US prepared to invade in the wake of 9-11. And the speed with which the Taliban collapsed after the war began came as a shock to a lot of observers. And it's no coincidence that the Taliban's resurgence has been fueled in large part by the profits it makes from opium. After the US invasion, as the war left, millions of Afghans destitute and the economy collapsed. Uh, farmers return to opium cultivation to make money, and the U.S. government made a really big deal about eradicating the industry. But this was understandably seen as a threat to many Afghans' economic security. I mean, there's about 3.5 million Afghans who depend on the drug trade in some way to make a living, uh, and the vast majority of these people are by no means kingpins or warlords. So imagine how garlin it would be to hear that you might end up out of work um, due to the people who've invaded and occupied your country while most of the politicians that the u.s is back in in this transition to democracy are all connected in some way to heroin trafficking at a much higher level than you and yet they're given a free pass to continue dealing Now, there was some suggestion at the outset of the war on terror that bin Laden and al-Qaeda financed much of their activity with heroin money, Uh, given bin Laden's considerable wealth and the fact that the main financiers of al-Qaeda have always been like the, uh, the wealthy aristocrats of the Gulf states. I've always had some doubts about this, but it is fair to say that he was sheltered and protected by people who undoubtedly owed their power to the heroin trade, from the Taliban leaders in Afghanistan to his guardian angels in the ISI in Pakistan. And one particularly odd story, speaking of the ISI, that I found this years ago in the 9-11 commission report, well, it details how in May of 1999, CIA informants on the ground in Kandahar gave five days' worth of detailed reports on bin Laden's movement in the region. And they located his safe houses, uh, his favorite haunts, um, and they nailed his daily routine, where he went, who he spoke to, you name it. And this info was then fed up the chain to CIA bosses and the Pentagon, and everyone seemed primed for a missile strike. And this is from the 9-11 Commission report. Quote, this was in our strike zone, a senior military officer said. It was a fat pitch. He expected the missiles to fly. When the decision came down that they were not to shoot, the military officer says, we just slumped. If this intelligence was not actionable, then it was hard to imagine how any intelligence on bin Laden could be. Now, George Tenet, who was the CIA director at the time, He claimed that he had no memory of this incident until other retired spooks said that he had actually been present throughout the debate between the Pentagon and the agency over hitting bin Laden's hideout with missiles. And then suddenly George Tenet was like, oh yeah, I do remember now. Um, One anonymous source that I found claims that the ISI reached out to the agency and I don't know how the ISI found out about this impending strike apparently they requested as a favor that the decision to go ahead with a strike be called off due to political sensitivities now i find this one of those fistful of salt stories so take it for what it's worth with that in mind but what's important to know is that this the isi and the cia have a long-standing on again off again love-hate relationship going on with each other And for political reasons, both outfits try their hardest to hide this from the public at large. Although the ISI is deeply involved in the drug trade, this hasn't stopped many of its members becoming increasingly hardline in their religious beliefs and extremely sympathetic towards groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. As Salon wrote a month after the 9-11 attacks, quote many in the isi actually love the united states they view america as an unreliable and duplicitous ally being especially resentful of the 1990 sanctions which came one year after the soviets pulled out of afghanistan furthermore the isi is dominated by pashtuns the same tribe that is the taliban's base of support across the border in afghanistan partly because of its family clan and business ties to the taliban the isi even more than Pakistani society in general, has become increasingly enamored of radical Islam in recent years. Now, obviously, kind of a bit of a a wild generalization about Pakistani society, but you get the the gist of what it's saying about the ISI. Now, 1999 is the same year that General Ahmad Mahmood took over as head of the ISI. And like General Musharraf, who became the leader of Pakistan the same month, October, both men were rumored to be involved in heroin trafficking, deeply involved. What they supposedly did was keep the trade at arm's length by taxing dealers who use smuggling routes in Pakistan. And then they funnel that money into you know, offshore bank accounts. General Mahmood spoke openly about becoming a born-again Muslim at the time. And he continued to harbor the same grudges over the um, American betrayal of 1990 as every other ISI officer. After the 9-11 attacks, it emerged that General Mahmoud had been instructing a British-born jihadi called Omar Sheikh and other contacts in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia to wire funds to the 19 hijackers after they'd arrived in America. Uh, Mahmoud himself is said to have personally uh, sent upwards of $100,000 into Mohammed Atta's bank account, He's the guy who flew the plane into the North Tower on 9-11. Daniel Ellsberg said after the attacks, it seems to me very plausible that Pakistan was quite involved in this, in 9-11. To say Pakistan is, to me, to say CIA, because it's hard to say that the ISI knew something that the CIA had no knowledge of. It's quite an interesting thing for Ellsberg, of all people, to say. And then... We have Sybil Edmonds, who was a former FBI translator and analyst uh, who started work at the Bureau a few weeks after 9-11. And she turned whistleblower after she was fired for raising concerns about some troubling connections she'd uncovered between the CIA, heroin trafficking, the Yugoslav conflict, the Turkish deep state and affiliates of Al-Qaeda. According to Edmonds, agents who were in on this operation Uh, would jokingly refer to their work with bin Laden's jihadi network in the 1990s as Gladio B. They were encouraged to attack civilians and public gatherings, the jihadis were, uh, and to commit attention-grabbing acts of violence that would drum up support for US military adventurism. And she further claims that Ayman al-Zahari, who was bin Laden's successor, Well, she says that he was tasked by NATO and the CIA with recruiting fighters who were smuggled into the Balkans as part of ongoing destabilization efforts that the US was undertaking in Yugoslavia in the 1990s. You might have heard of the uh, Bosnian Mujahideen. Well, Al-Zahari was the group's commander and two of the 9-11 hijackers actually fought in Bosnia under him. And she also said she'd uncovered evidence that corrupt elements in NATO and the CIA had given the Bosnian fighters a license to sell drugs and that these same officers were actively participating in the trade themselves. She says that um, these NATO insiders especially made planes available for a vast heroin smuggling enterprise that stretched from Afghanistan through Belgium and Britain into the US and it used the Balkans as a crucial route. And on top of this, during the 1990s, the CIA was attempting to kind of win over key figures in Turkish society, uh, and NATO was trying to carry favor with the Grey Wolves, um, who were part of its Operation Gladio detachment, but had grown somewhat estranged from NATO as a whole uh, during the 80s and 90s. Edmund says that the agency directed their contacts in Afghanistan's heroin trade to ship dope in bulk to Turkey at discount prices. Additionally, (laughs) uh, she said that the FBI and the CIA knew for months before September 2001 that Al-Qaeda was planning to hijack planes and carry out suicide missions against at least four separate targets inside the US. She said, quote, In the late 1990s, all the way up to 9-11, al-Zahari and other Mujahideen operatives were meeting regularly with senior U.S. officials in the U.S. Embassy in Baku to plan the Pentagon's Balkan operations with the Mujahideen. We had support for these operations from Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, but the U.S. oversaw and directed them. They were being run from a secret section of the Pentagon with its own office. And the FBI, as usual, kind of, trying to clean up for the CIA, moved quickly to remove her from her post and tried to hit her with a gagging order. Uh, They retroactively classified everything she had said as top secret, while John Ashcroft submitted arguments in support of quashing a deposition she'd made under the state secret's privilege. In 2008, the Sunday Times began preparing a four-part investigation into her claims that seemed likely to largely support almost everything she'd said. Uh, or oh, so insiders at the paper said later we don't actually know because mi6 leaned very heavily on the editorial board to drop the story the american civil liberties union has also described her as the most gagged person in the history of the united states and if you think all of this is citing to sound too wild just mind-boggling if you think that this is really just a translator who was feeling resentful because she was sacked for doing a bad job or something like that Then remember that the actual Justice Department concluded after Edmonds had sued the FBI for wrongful termination, quote, many of her allegations are supported. The FBI did not take them seriously enough and her allegations are, in fact, the most significant factor in the FBI's decision to terminate her services. So what I'm saying, or what Edmonds is saying and what I... Glean from what i've read of what she has to say it's entirely possible that 9-11 was a joint isi and saudi intelligence operation partly financed by heroin money and the cia and the fbi looked the other way maybe they didn't know that it was going to be as big as it was but they looked the other way because they were terrified of what disrupting the plot before it went ahead might Exposed to the public about the CIA's own involvement in all this shadow play with drug traffickers and sponsored terrorism and destabilization efforts all through the 80s and 90s and probably going back before that. So, I guess it's looking like we're not going to have enough time to get into all the other crazy shit I've dug up around the subject of drugs. So, I think we'll close out soon. but I'm, I'm hoping you have a, an idea of how brain frying this is as a, as a topic when you really go deep on it. So I think since we dropped by the Balkans, we might as well head on over to Kosovo now and quickly have a look at the role of the CIA and drugs in the 1999 war and the subsequent intervention. Peter Dale Scott wrote an interesting piece for Lobster Magazine a few years ago in which he sketched out what he calls the Global Drug Meta Group. And this is a network of uh, spooky Russian oligarchs and American deep state sickers loosely gathered around a firm called Far West Limited, which is a private intelligence outfit based in Europe that has ties to CIA front companies in the States. The primary business interests of the people connected to Far West is drugs, guns and oil far west is alternately in bed and in conflict with the cia and the problem you'll encounter when trying to find out more about them is that you very quickly stumble into a the radical right-wing conspiracy world because uh russophobia is never very far away from anti-semitism and far west limited gives the cranks ample opportunity to kind of indulge in both so, because of this dearth of information i'm going to stick as closely as possible to peter dale scott's piece without just regurgitating it word for word um i'll link it on the patreon if i remember specifically i'm going to use his reference to the so-called uh, rush for pristina airport uh, just after the end of the the conflict in kosovo as a sort of launching pad to talk about the consequences of the nato intervention there First, just a little bit of background about Far West from what I've been able to dig up from here and there. Uh, So it was founded by a Russian general called Vladimir Filin. And throughout the 2000s, he met several times with uh, President Bush in the White House. He also earned interest in some ethanol factories in Brazil with none other than George Soros. And he maintained close links to the the Banderites, the uh, Ukrainian fascist movement. And now, although he was likely on the CIA's payroll, uh, Filin worked with the FARC in Colombia to ship cocaine to Europe and sold guns to Venezuela and X-55 ballistic missiles to Iran, which made it impossible for him to set up American branch offices for Far West. The company was ostensibly a security contractor and it occasionally partnered with similar outfits like Newbridge Strategies and Diligence. Uh, these were two American security firms that won lucrative contracts in Iraq at the beginning of the war on terror. And both of these companies were in deep with the Bush administration. Uh, Neil Bush received almost $100,000 in donations from uh, Newbridge and Diligence. And feeling describes Far West, as such. Quote My company is connected with the secured transport of commercial shipments from Afghanistan, where we have an office, to ports on the Black Sea. Who our partners are is a commercial secret. I can say that there are four private firms from three countries Turkey, Russia, and the US which engage, among other things, in shipping. One of these firms is a subdivision of a well known American corporation. This firm is a co-founder of our agency. Now, an anonymous informant, who Peter Dale Scott refers to as Yuri Yassinev, he said that the co-founding firm was KBR Halliburton, uh, an American company with very close ties to the CIA, and Far West has actually done some work for them in Georgia. This informant also said that Far West's main interest was the drug trade. Uh, Scott describes how all these various uh, private military contractors, these PMCs. They are part of what he calls the drug meta group, a tangled network of transnational corporations, business people, private security companies, state officials, intelligence organizations, and organized crime syndicates. Uh, and in his words, they are able to manipulate and profit from global drug trafficking without necessarily having to directly handle or smuggle drugs as such. I mean, not that that has stopped them, as we've seen. So how does Kosovo fit into this? Well, in the summer of 1999, Adnan Khashoggi, the uh, the arms trafficker, and Iran-Contra player, he hosted a summit at his French villa where key players from far west met with a number of shady business and intelligence operatives with connections to militant Islamic groups, Chechen rebels, Colombian drug traffickers, and the Kosovo Liberation Army. Quote, The head of the Russian presidential administration, Alexander Voloshin, had met secretly with the most wanted man in Russia, Shamil Bezeev, through the good offices of a retired officer in the GIU, Anton Sierakov at a villa belonging to international arms merchant Adnan Khashoggi. And then it goes on to say that um, around the same time, a Venezuelan banker named Alfonso Davidovich uh, also took up residence at the villa for a few days and attended this meeting. And then it says, in the Latin American press, he is said to be responsible for laundering the funds of the Colombian left insurrection organisation FARC, which carries out an armed struggle with the official authorities supported by the narcotics business. It's quite a tangled web with a lot of people with seemingly conflicting ideologies all kind of meeting at this villa and uh, sort of (laughs) talking around the business of drugs. Uh, Anyway, yeah, another Far West Limited attendee at Khashoggi's villa was Ruslan Saidov, who is a former Russian military officer, an arms dealer. And a drug trafficker whose subordinates flew heroin from the Albanian mafia out of Kosovo's Pristina airport, uh, you know, prior to the war kicking off. Now, Scott is describing this meeting in his article uh, because he's talking about the the concepts of drugs and managed violence, which has implications for some of the stuff we've discussed in this episode as well. What this group supposedly met at Khashoggi's villa for, what they actually discussed uh, is obviously, we, we'll likely never know, but it is possible to fathom that some of it maybe pertained to what would become known as the Russian 9-11. These were the uh, apartment bombings that took place across Russia. I think about three, of five, three to 500 people died, all told. There's also, there's always been a lot of suspicion that the, the Russian state actually conducted these bombings in a kind of strategy of tension type thing and his argument is that these this drug meta group the these uh, different syndicates who have some hand in the, the global drug trade they're now able to shape uh, the policy of nation states in order to facilitate favorable economic outcomes for themselves and and the trade that they're in. That dovetails with what we were talking about when it came to the role of the ISI heroin and financing the 9-11 operation. Anyway, as the war between the Kosovo Liberation Army and the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia got going in the, the late 1990s, the, the so-called 15 families, the Albanian mafia clans who control the heroin trade through that part of the Balkans. They started to divert funds and weapons to the KLA. Now, the CIA and NATO backed the KLA unreservedly. And and to be quite honest, you know, I've got no real interest in getting into all the whys and wherefores of the Yugoslav wars just yet because it's not relevant strictly for this part of the show. Uh, for now, what we need to know is that the CIA was aware that as much as 50% of the KLA's funding was coming from the heroin trade uh, and they supported the organization with tactical advice and the odd covert weapon shipment. And, you know, on another level, we'll be aware that owing to the agency's ties with figures from Far West, it was also well aware that Far West was involved in shipping the heroin out of Pristina, Um on behalf of the uh, the Albanian mafia, and for a little while, the U.S. officially adopted a pose of reluctance to directly intervene in the conflict in Kosovo. But the funny thing about the destruction of Yugoslavia, uh, much like Syria, is that for all that it gets talked up as the war where the world, you know, did nothing. There were plenty of cover interventions by the West all throughout the 1990s that helped to accelerate the descent into chaos and, and fuel the violence. And once the UN did intervene, uh, so did a bunch of uh, PMCs who saw, they saw a shattered nation or shattered people, and they realized there is so much money to be made here. And maybe the most notorious of these private military contractors from the time is uh, car uh, the security firm that overbilled the US for peacekeeping patrols that it never conducted while it was buying and selling an unknown number of women and child sex slaves in Bosnia. Um, and just incidentally, Dyncor also had a hand in the cocaine trade in Colombia back in the 80s. It was also trafficking children around South America at the same time, uh, as it would go on to do in Afghanistan during the war on terror. So I am willing to bet my life savings that once they shifted their operation, their operational base to Kosovo in 1999, I'm about to bet my life savings that they were also involved in the same stuff there. So as we, we've kind of mentioned, the CIA had already trafficked guns into Bosnia in the mid-90s, in, uh, and, and fires as well, in direct contravention of the White House's orders not to get involved. Uh, although, how sincere those orders were, you know, is a matter for debate. Maybe they were made to be ignored. Um, And the agency was itching to throw in fully behind the KLA. And once NATO finally intervened in 1999, the Americans backed KLA leader Hashim Thatchi as a very reliable client. And he appointed himself the head of the provisional government. But just prior to this, at the end of the war, the world came fairly close to a US-Russia conflict and uh it's it's a very strange incident, is this? So to keep it quick and simple, Russia had entered the Kosovo Theatre and the official narrative is has it that this was at the behest of Yeltsin, who felt like his authority wasn't being taken seriously by NATO or the US. So Russian troops were initially deployed in Bosnia, but about two hundred of them abruptly slipped across the border in mid-June of ninety nine and raced towards Pristina airport. And what's significant about this is that this dash for Pristina was probably organized by a couple of senior military officers, um, Anatoly Kayashin and uh, Lenid Ivashov. Without the knowledge of Yeltsin or his minister of defense, uh, Anton Sierikov, the Russian intelligence and politics insider, he later said that, Far West founder Vladimir Filin, tipped off by contacts in the CIA, had already reached the airport, which was under the control of a KLA squad led by Hashim Thatchi. He got there before the Russian troops did. And once he got there, he negotiated with the KLA fighters and together they moved an unknown amount of heroin out of the airport before the Russians arrived. Peter Dale scott implies that the russians had dashed to the airport hoping to grab this dope before the kla or feeling could get hold of it but they were out of luck this was when the nato forces arrived and while the british commander mike jackson was all for de-escalation and a, a careful negotiation with the russians the american commander wesley clark he was adamant that the uh, the russkies needed a firm hand before they called in reinforcements and went to war with the NATO troops so he ordered Jackson to block the runway to prevent any Russian troop carriers from landing and this is when Mike Jackson you know said the famous line I'm not going to start World War 3 for you. I'm just interjecting here because somehow this got clipped out when I I rendered out of audacity. So I'm just going to include this again because this is fucking insane and amazing. Right. So here where you've got uh, the NATO forces and Russia facing each other at this airport, it wasn't actually uh, General Mike Jackson who was the first British troop to refuse to uh, engage the Russians to confront them uh, with firepower. It was actually um, the singer-songwriter James Blunt, who at the time was serving um, in the British Army. James Blunt possibly prevented World War III and he was backed up by Mike Jackson when uh, the General Clark kicked off with him and, and tried ordering him to open up on the Russians. Anyway, I'll let you get back to the show. So concerns were raised here and there at the time about Hashim Thatchi's connections to organized crime but all efforts to properly investigate them were thwarted by the CIA and French intelligence and you have to understand just how deeply embedded organized crime and corruption is in Kosovo to understand why this guy could become the most powerful politician in the country and given his close ties to western intelligence outfits it's it's hardly surprising that Ulex which is the uh the European Union rule of law mission in Kosovo. It's hardly surprising that it was so reluctant to dig particularly deeply into any of this. And in fact, when they took it upon themselves to clean up uh, Kosovo's political system in 2009, most commentators in the country couldn't help but notice that the graft and influence of organized crime actually seemed to increase after the EU's intervention. So Thatchi the CIA's golden body. Well, he's since been accused not just of maintaining extensive ties to the Albanian mafia and the heroin trade, but also for running a shadowy private intelligence group embedded in his own political party called Sheik uh, and paying contract killers to take out political and business rivals. And on top of this, he and his uh, KLA his former KLA comrades, have been indicted for committing war crimes during the war, including the execution of Serb civilians and harvesting their organs for sale on the black market. Them Langley boys, they sure can pick them, can't they? We have, I think, we have a pretty good idea now of what the utility of the drug trade is to imperial powers and how State actors aren't the only ones who are effectively immune from legal consequences. And as the decades have rolled along, a lot of the work of trafficking has fallen increasingly to private sector entities who benefit from the protection of the public state through, you know, lucrative business and uh, social connections without even the minor amount of democratic scrutiny that, say, the CIA is occasionally subjected to What's also interesting to me is the way the economic incentives of the drug trade have the knack of dissolving ideological distinctions between different groups. So consider the summit at Khashoggi's Villa or Far West working with jihadis and left-wing guerrillas alike uh, all to chase a profit. And hopefully we've also got some idea as well of what the consequences of all this shadiness is. For ordinary people. And, you know, for people caught up in the gears of this gigantic machine, like um, black Americans living in the inner city in the States, uh, the Afghan farmers, the Mexican migrant workers uh, killed by Los Zetas. Um, I do apologize as well that we once again only touched on BCCI glancingly without really going deep. Uh, trust me again, that is coming. But, I think it's also been pretty instructive just to kind of follow the drug money as it moves through an institution like HSBC. Uh, Because I think what we'll find as this century continues on, as climate change really starts to bite and capital begins to lurch from one crisis to another with increasing frequency, I think what we'll find without some kind of serious um, overhaul of the existing system, if not the dismantling of it and replacing it with something else, I think what we'll find is an accelerated merging of the legal and illegal economies um, as organized crime and the function of the state start to blur into one another. That ought to tie it up for now. Um, next episode, we're going to be looking at James Angleton and what he called the monster plot, as well as some of the mysterious ways that people in his orbit died during his time at the CIA, as ever thanks for listening uh drop us a rating and review on itunes if you haven't already i'm told that it helps with the ranking and it also helps bring new listeners to the show so if you get the chance you'd be doing me a big solid with that um urge on friends and loved ones and don't get captured thanks a lot guys and i'll catch you next episode